0: We have been engaged over the past few weeks in examining an apostle's conception of what a Christian looks like, the marks of authentic Christianity. And this description in Romans 12 is very helpful as a tool in your spiritual walk if you take your walk seriously. Romans 12, 9 and following is a standard, a, a measuring rod for you to compare with your Christian life. So let the word of God reveal to you areas where you need work, and then practice your faith in those weak areas. Verse 9 says, let love be without hypocrisy. If you're failing to love as Christ did, and I think most of us probably do somewhere, study love in the Bible as it appears, and reflect on God's love, and then pray and to rid your heart of obstacles to love, like bitterness and jealousy and self-centeredness, and strategize ways to love indeed to do what's best for those who you are called on to love. The second part of verse 9 there, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Are you morally fuzzy at times? One foot in the world. Well, study holiness in the scripture. Reflect on God's utter and complete hatred for sin. Pray to him to have his mind and his heart as regards evil. Then examine your life for compromise and like weeding a garden, pluck out those things um which are an offense to the holiness of God. You do that kind of work as you work your way through this list. Delight, then, in what is good. These are all examples of ways and approaches that you can take with elements as each one is prayerfully evaluated. That's really what you should be doing as we're working through this list. Well, this morning we come to verse 13 and two related Christian virtues that directly suggest service to other people. Let's look at verse 13 there. Contributing to the needs of the saints... Practicing hospitality we'll just stop right there that's our text for today Uh, there's much more here than just helping your neighbor dig a ditch or something which is a nice thing to do but this is a little beyond that I think there exists in fact a, a whole theology behind these actions a theology regarding wealth and our possessions a theology regarding personal items a theology of understanding what a Christian's role is in the world Foundational, as we've discussed many times, but I fear life often crowds it out of our minds, is the idea that we are ambassadors of heaven. We are ambassadors of God's kingdom in a foreign land, a strange world. That's our job in the world. God loves the wretched mass of humanity of which we are a part. And in our sphere, we are to be God's hands in showing God's love the world. That's what we're here for. Say, what's life all about? That's exactly what it's all about. As a Christian, you are an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven to earth, to represent that land, and to draw people to it. Now, as part of our ambassadorial role, God blesses us with stuff. Mammon is the old English word. Shelter, food, money, clothes, toys, all that kind of stuff. He provides especially for us, a bounteous and wealthy nation where we can earn much more than we need. And for this I trust we are rightly thankful. But God doesn't want us to just end with being thankful. God doesn't want or expect us to hoard our blessings that he gives us. He expects us to share it and make it at the disposal of those who might need it to bless other people. The Bible just abounds with texts reminding us of this very basic aspect of living with an awareness that our bounty is God's gift, and it's to be used as He desires, not just for our own personal enjoyment. Deuteronomy chapter 8, in the Law of Moses, just as the people were preparing to enter the land of Canaan as God's gift, Moses warns the people, and in verse 11 of Deuteronomy 8, he says, Beware! That's a warning. You have to perk up your ears when somebody says, Beware. Beware of what? Beware lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statues which I am commanding you today. Lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies then your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise you may say in your heart, My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth." But you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So don't forget God in your wealth. Do you think you could gain wealth apart from the provision of his strength that he provides, the circumstances of your life that are favorable? In Isaiah chapter 58, the Lord is criticizing the religious practices of the people of that day wicked men men of power and influence and money who oppressed the poor and mistreated those who worked for them and took advantage of them while they themselves were fasting and doing this religious sort of activity and the lord says in isaiah 58 verse 6 he says is this not the fast which i choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness to undo the bands of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. If you want to fast, go around and free people. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house and when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your, heart, your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. See, a godly fast isn't some religious observance. It's a way to remember and serve the less fortunate. That's a big part of that. Is this not the fast which I choose? says the Lord. Isn't this what I would rather see than all kinds of religious activity? When we come to the New Testament, there's a great deal of discussion about stuff, especially from the Lord Jesus himself. The emphasis is on taking care of each other, which is part of what Paul says in Romans 12. Romans 12:13 12, again, contributing, this is just part of this list, contributing to the needs of the saints. Who are saints? Well, those are those holy people that are put on little icons and on your wall. How do we contribute to their needs anyway? No, in the Bible, saints are... Every believer is a saint. A saint, the word saint is just a person that's set apart. A saint is a person that's called out of the world, made an ambassador of Christ, granted the new birth, lives for Jesus. any other Christian is a saint. The church of God, as Paul has said just a few verses earlier in Romans 12, verse 5, is a unity, a unity so close that he says, we who are many are one body. Members. Individually of one another. One body in Christ, verse 5. Members of one another. One body, one household, one family. People go a long way to help family members, I've seen. And the spiritual family, Jesus said, is the highest bond of all. It is thicker than blood. Spirit is thicker than blood because spirit lasts forever. And when we have a spiritual union in Christ, that is a stronger bond even than family. And so we have that same attitude of going a long way to help family. Indeed, the description of the church in the book of Acts is almost scary in its closeness, scary to us Uh, individualistic american types because it's just kind of an amazing thing let me just read acts chapter 4 verse 32 this is right after the church got going very soon after the day of pentecost thousands of people came to christ the church is booming in jerusalem and it says the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own but all things were common property to them And with great power the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all for there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. doesn't mean everybody was homeless. It meant if you had extra stuff you would sell it off and they'd bring it and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now this isn't some kind of a communistic thing because this isn't forced. This was a voluntary approach to being a community of believers. People were eager to help each other. They wanted, they wanted to do that. Their possessions became opportunities to meet the needs of the saints. So the whole perspective had changed dramatically. Brother, you need this? You can have it. It's yours. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, Luke tells us. It's a wonderful description of how life, new life in Christ, expresses itself in the real world by transformation. People aren't often actually like this, but here are thousands of people of one heart and soul. Genuinely, it's a, it's a "mi casa es su casa" thing. It's you know, it's my house is your house, that kind of a, a deal. Come by if you need a place. Come by. There's an interesting passage in Hebrews chapter 6. Let's turn over there. Now, Hebrews 6 is typically known for the scary part. It's description of what happens to apostates, false professors who fall away from the faith. In verse 4, he says, um, In the case of those who have once been enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Now there are people who by all appearances are genuine Christians. They enjoy the blessings of being in the Christian community. They're taught the Word of God. They have seen the transforming power of God in other people. And then they walk away, usually to do some sin, which they prefer over the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 7 and 8, he uses an analogy from farming the Bible often talks about fruit, um, vegetation as an uh, outgrowth of the Christian life, you know. Verse 7, he says, uh, For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being Burned now verse 7 there for the ground drinks the rain which often falls upon it the rain here probably represents the goodness of the Christian experience in the church he's drawing off what he just said in verses 4 through 6 so the the love the support the hope the unity of the body the the word of God the experience that produces vegetation but in the parable of the soils it's much like that different soils produce different results you may remember that story Jesus told that different kinds of soil when the word of God fell on it they made different things only one soil was fruitful that's the kind of situation you have here the ground that drinks the rain the benefits of the christian community that falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from god but if it yields thorns and thorns and thistles it is worthless and close to being cursed and is burned sometimes the rain of god's blessing actually draws out and exposes a wicked heart which does not appreciate any of the blessings of knowing Christ but prefers the world because that person is of the world in their heart. Thorns and thistles are the fruit that comes from a life like that. Now, all this is just setting up what I want to show you in uh, Hebrews chapter 6. The thorns and thistles life was not the case for those to whom the writer of Hebrews wrote the letter. In other words, he's looking at them and although he's saying this, he's saying, but that's not you. That's not you. The folks he is writing to evidence their salvation. There is visible evidence of their salvation, genuine fruit from the life of Christ within. Look at verse 9. He says, But, beloved, we are concerned of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking In this way, these are things that belong to salvation. What things are they that he is talking about that actually comes along with salvation? Verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. How? In having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. They have shown love towards God's name by ministering to the saints. The same idea we have in Romans 12:13, Work and love in service of the saints. Notice the emphasis of these texts on service to our fellow Christians. It's not that we should neglect being kind to all men, but there is a familial bond that makes our brothers and sisters in Christ a priority. That's made very clear in another important text. Just back up a little bit to Galatians chapter 6. Let's look at that. <coughs> excuse me, Galatians chapter 6 flows out of the end of chapter 5, and in chapter 5 Paul offers us a description of the fruit of the Spirit. If a Christian is walking by the Spirit, what will be manifested? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In chapter 6 then, Paul begins to explain how that fruit of the Spirit works out in dealing with our fellow Christians. First, it means loving confrontation. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if any man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. There aren't many favors you can do for somebody that would be greater or more important than turning them from an evil path because that will lead to their destruction. So if you can do that for somebody, you're doing them great service. You're being very gracious and kind. Bear one another's burdens. That's how you fulfill Jesus' commandments to love one another. Let's skip down to verse 9. There's more here. Verse 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. That's very similar to Romans chapter 12, verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, right? Now, here in Galatians 6, 9, it says, Let us not lose heart in doing good. The objects of our good are described in the next verse, verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There is our priority in our balance. Do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. When we put all this together, what do we see? All these texts we've talked about this morning. We see the church as God's chosen and perfect place to practice the Christian life and Christian virtues. Churches are, after all, made up of rather imperfect and often needy people. Needy in different ways. Some people are needy for material help, sure, but also needy for companionship, needy for encouragement, needy for someone to lean on in a time of crisis or weakness. People need prayer support and all kinds of simple kindnesses. That's not the sort of thing that goes on when there's no love that contributes to the needs of the saints, no commitment to serve God's people. But that's the sort of thing you are to be about as a Christian if you're living your Christian life properly. With regard to stuff, our stuff, we realize it is really God's stuff. And we really have a mindset that He can do with it whatever He wants. Are you there yet? If that's where you should be in your Christian life. It's His stuff. Church people, um, this, this whole mindset really works directly into this second item in chapter 12, verse 13 where it says, practicing hospitality. Back in Romans, Romans twelve thirteen, Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Hospitality. Hospitality is one form of Christian service that was really important in the ancient world. Christians would travel uh, in ministry in the Roman world, communicating between churches, bringing letters or gifts, circulating the scriptures, um, going on missions trips, uh, bringing important news across the world. You know, they didn't have phones, they didn't have a regular official type postal service and stuff like that. Travel. In those days, meant a need for lodging because there were not a lot of uh, four star hotels or even uh, Motel 8s. You know, there wasn't a lot of that kind of stuff around. There were a few inns, but not regularly. You didn't always find a place to stay in places, so uh, it was rather difficult. It was considered an important ministry in the church to provide short term lodging to brothers and sisters in Christ who were on the road, whether you knew them or not. That was just done. Let's talk about the word hospitality as it is used in the New Testament. The word itself is a really interesting word. It's a Greek word, of course, being a Greek book. Philo Xenion. Now, philo, we've talked about a lot. What does that mean? Love, right, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, love, brother, brother's love, Philadelphia. Xeno is a word that means stranger or foreigner. We still use that word today in English, if you have a big vocabulary. You may have heard the term xenophobic, xenophobia. That is a, that's sort of an unwarranted fear or hatred of foreign people, you know. You're so xenophobic, you don't like people from other lands coming here, that kind of thing. That's a a typical word you hear around. A distrust of strangers, a fear of strangers. So philoxenia is a love for strangers. To love strangers. Hospitality is showing love to people you don't know. Now, we think of hospitality as when your friends come over and you provide a nice little tea and stuff. That's not what the board means in the Greek. Love for strangers. Now, people who practice hospitality, providing lodging and care for those who need temporary accommodations, they need to have a godly focus. And they need to have a spiritual focus about stuff. They need to have that mindset that their possessions are a stewardship from God because hospitality involves risk hospitality involves the risk of loss things might get broken some precious keepsakes or favorite decorations or this or that might not survive strangers tromping through the house because you don't know all the idiosyncrasies of the people you might be hospitable toward occasionally a stranger might even be dishonest and some item might turn up missing 1 Peter 4.9, Peter says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. And of course, just people having their own little quirks of personality and stuff can chafe the host, you know. And he says, don't be like that. It's a love of strangers. Not grudgingly, not focusing on losses, but focusing on service. People who do hospitality full time, and there is uh, in the Christian community a lot of people that that's how they live their life. They open their homes always for troubled teens, for people that are uh, need a place or people that are stumbled or people that um, are going through some kind of recovery program or all those kind of things. People, they just open their homes. Always. There's always people in their home. There are people like that. In fact, there's an excellent book called Radical Hospitality which sort of lays out how to be that kind of person, that kind of family if you're ever interested in something like that. But as a ministry, a good example would be the Schafers, Francis Schaefer, Edith Schaefer in Brie in Switzerland. When they opened their home, they went to Switzerland opened a home for people to come. Mark Pedersen, from our church went there when he was a young wandering man like many thousands of people did from all over the world we went to switzerland and lived with the shepherds for a while and were taught christianity in practice and they'd have all these philosophical discussions this is the days in the, you know, in the 60s and 70s and people were like 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 confused you know they're more confused now but they were like openly confused back then <laughs> now we're arrogantly confused but in those days people were really searching and so they just opened this home in Switzerland and Europeans Americans people from all over the world Asia they would come there and land there for a while and deal with philosophical issues talk about the heady issues of the day and and many people found Christ there talk to Mark about that sometime it's quite an experience he had there and that still goes on the Schaeffers are dead now but their children and other people have kept those ministries going on but Edith Schaeffer she writes in her uh, books about their experiences she says that um, she was real quick to learn to let things go because, you know, you have your favorite objects or whatever and inevitably they all got broken. I mean, everything. She said every, every wedding gift we ever had was destroyed within the first year or two, you know, and, and uh, you just can't plan to hang on to all that kind of stuff. The priority had to be phyloxenia, loving strangers, not stuff, not philo furniture, you know. It had to be phyloxenia, love to strangers. But while temporal items were lost, many, many souls were fit for eternity because of the sacrifices of stuff that they made. So love and patience and Christian truth became the center of their home and their life. Before I got married, my, my roommate Scott Stellar and I had some very bizarre hospitality situations. Now, after you get married, it's a little bit different because you've got to be a little bit more careful about who's in your home, but... Um, we would just have... For some reason, people brought us, the strangest people, and they would live, live with us for a while in our apartment in Van Nuys. And it was... I could tell you stories. But we seem to be a magnet for that. I don't know why. I'll take them to Scott and Wayne. They'll love them, you know. Um, because we were involved in ministry to juvenile offenders, we used to do that six times a, a month. We'd go down Canaan Doom Road down to the prison camps down there and teach Bible studies and stuff. And sometimes when those guys got out they would get in trouble or with their families or whatever and they would need a place to stay and sure enough they would end up at our house now they weren't total strangers they were teens that had come to our Bible studies while they were incarcerated so we knew who they were but it wasn't always easy obviously um, dealing with situations like that one time after, right after we were married Laura and I took in a young man who had been in one of those camps and he joined the Navy and flipped out and went AWOL and he showed up at our door you know uh, hi Brian how are you and uh, he just skipped out and he needed a place to get his head together. He also needed to talk to his girlfriend for hours and hours and hours in the middle of the night while we were asleep, so he ran up a massive phone bill and had no money. That's the kind of thing that can happen, see, when you open yourself up to that sort of a ministry. But those kind of ministry situations are, are more extreme forms of hospitality, but being able to provide for brothers and sisters in need of temporary shelter is just a normal part of Christian living. It's, it's you Xenia, a love for strangers. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 and Titus 1, eight, hospitality is a requirement for being an elder in the church. That's one of the things. He says hospitable. A person should be known for having that mindset. The book of Hebrews adds some very interesting aspects to this as well. Hebrews 13.1, it says, Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. Did you catch that? Some have entertained angels unaware. Some of these brethren passing through might be angels in disguise. Now, I'm pretty sure this kid that had to call his girlfriend was not an angel in disguise. I don't think I've ever had an angel in my house, but, um, except my wife. She's kind of an angel. But, um, oh, sure. <laughs> Two points, okay. <laughs> now that would be really cool to have one. You know, you always kind of wonder what they're like. Are they sort of like, you know, what do they do? Or how do they talk? Or what do you have kind of conversations do you have? Because in the Bible, when angels show up in human form, they're, they're pretty set on what they're doing. They're not like real relaxed, like, uh, you know, I don't know, play ball or something. It just doesn't seem like, let's go shoot some hoops. Or I, I don't know, you know, what they act like, but anyway. Um, it does say though, that sometimes you actually might pick one up if you're, <laughs> if you're open to that kind of thing, helping them on their way. Um, unless maybe Jerome he could have been an angel (laughs) this is a guy that was off the street and he would stand in front of the mirror for hours and go yeah 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 yeah," and pull on his beard so he was talking to somebody so (laughs) he might have had angels or or the other side I don't know anyway he was an interesting character too he was a homeless guy that when you cook hot dogs for him he didn't want them because they weren't his brand that was one of those kind of gear anyway um But hospitality is so much a part of what it means to be a Christian that Jesus includes it as a definition of those who belong to him even in the great judgment. Let's turn uh, one last place to look this morning. Matthew 25. When Christ returns, all who are left on earth after the great tribulation will be gathered before him the nations of the world and these are people who have lived through an unparalleled crisis in the world I mean unimaginable disasters Christians then were expected which is yet future will be expected to be just as giving as ever I mean it's, it's not stuff that you set aside because times are hard in fact when times are hard it might be even more important to be a Philozenian lover of strangers here verse 31 We read this already this morning, but I want to read it again. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him. He will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Put the sheep on His right, the goats on His left. Okay, what's the difference between sheep and goats? Interestingly enough, in this particular text, it's put in terms of what you do. Now, we know that salvation is not by works because the Bible says that all over the place, but if faith is real, it does work. It does have these... Qualities that come forth in life. So it's fair for Jesus to say, you know, if I see this, you're a sheep. If I don't, you're a goat. And that's what he says. The king will say to those on his right, verse 34, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What beautiful words. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the people say, well, We didn't see you. When was that? You know, were you sneaking around on earth? And who did that? Did you do that, Charlie? No, I didn't do that. I mean, they're all, you know. And then he says to them, Verse 40 I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, the saints, you did it to me. And then the people on this left, the goats, he sends them off into hell. And they say, Well, wait a minute. When did we see you and not do that for you? And he says, when the, the, the needy person in, this, in the group needed something and you didn't do it for them, and you didn't take care of them, and you didn't care, so that showed that you're not mine. You're a goat. You're not a sheep. See? So love and service define what it means to be in the flock, to be a sheep. Christianity is not a verbal acknowledgement of just some truth. It's truth in life. It's, it's truth in action so loving fellow believers is what it's all about even if you don't know them that's what makes solo Christians so wrong in their thinking you know the type of person well I don't need to be a church person because I can be a Christian on my own I, I meet people like that all the time maybe, maybe not maybe you don't have to be a church person to be a Christian but how can a disciple of Christ reject the institution that Christ designed for ministry how can you say, I, don't want to, I want to have Jesus and nothing to do with his program or his desires or his institution or his organization or his people? That's just so not fitting. How do you contribute to the needs of the saints without involving yourself with some saints, you know? How do you serve when you're disconnected? How does a detached part of their body deserve, serve the whole body? If I cut my foot off, it might still be a foot, but it doesn't help me get around very much. Yeah, it's a foot. Looking a little pale. Romans 12 is such an important chapter about our thinking and our being and our doing as Christians. So we are ambassadors, remember, of God's kingdom. So... As an ambassador, you have to just rethink everything about your life before you were an ambassador and say, what has to change based on the role that I am given by God in this world? And then live it. It's really that simple. And loving strangers and contributing to the needs of the saints is part of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being such a great model. Jesus himself, indeed, always went about doing good. And what a great example he was for us, always meeting the needs, waiting, even when oppressed by great multitudes of people, taking the time and stopping and meeting every need and looking at every soul and every eye. And what a great example, a man who had not even a place to lay his head, but did so much good for you, Lord. What a a model. Let's not think of him as so distant from us that we can't follow in his steps in those ways. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.